0: lots of things are better together hockey food golf how about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day but if you really want to take things to the next level drink some labat blue lights with your friends and live life to the power of we always enjoy responsibly beer labat usa buffalo new york
1: a pleasure to have you with us here on the gm shuffle we got lots of actual football to talk about but A real gift being given to us from an excellent author named Mark Seal. His book is called Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, The Epic Story of the Making of the Godfather. You've heard Michael talk about it here on the GM Shuffle. So reached out to him and he's got some awesome stories about the Godfather and Coppola and Puzo. Mike, he's a real treat for everyone to listen to, right? You know,
2: it really is. And and he's written some incredible books. Uh, He goes in such great detail. and We'll talk to him about it. Uh, about the making of it. And he breaks down scene by scene, even how they found Louie's restaurant in the Bronx and all that stuff. If you're a fan like I am of The Godfather, this book is something that you'll just absolutely love to read. And Mark, uh, when we talk to him, we'll go in detail about all the things that we learned. I I will say this, though, as uh, one of the founding fathers of The Daily Coach, as as I was reading this book, it reaffirmed to me that collaboration doesn't work, and we'll find out why.
1: Let's get into the football, beginning with Packers and Cardinals. Thursday night football, so we're recording this Thursday morning. The line is Cardinals minus six and a half. J.J. Watt is done. Once again, injuries hurting him. DeAndre Hopkins is questionable for this one. Devontae Adams, David Bakhtiari, both out for the Green Bay Packers. Already talked, Mike, this is a potential NFC Championship matchup. Let's start first off with the Packers. How big is the loss of Devontae Adams?
2: Well, you know, they've been able to cover spreads uh, without Devontae Adams. I think they've had six games with him not in there, and they've they've won... Uh, they've covered the spread or have won the games. I don't know the complete breakdown, but they've been able to offset it. I, I don't know if they can this week, you know, obviously with Lazard out, you know, Adams has got 52 catches for the team. He's so productive. I mean, they get him the ball and most importantly, Rogers trust him beyond anything. So I think that's going to be a real, a real problem for the Packers. Can they generate the passing game against a very good Arizona defense? Now, you know, Arizona, we talked about it all off season about signing these older players and, you know, and, and, you know, and I, and I, I mean, look, JJ Watts is still a good player. He's not the dominant pass rusher that he once was, but he's still a good player. But the fact is, look, you know, you signed an older guy, older guys get hurt. Now they lose him for the year. What the Cardinals must be able to do is avoid these injuries. And they've got a bunch of them. You know, Rodney Hudson, their starting center, has been out. Max Garcia, their backup center, he's now hurt going into the game. So they've got a lot of injuries to con- to deal with. But, you know, they've been they've been resilient. They've been working towards it. They've just got to keep Chandler Jones healthy and keep some of these pa- other players, these veteran guys, healthy. But I, I think what we'll see tonight is we'll see – I love how everybody A.D. is calling – you know, they're calling – uh, Kyler Murray, the, the the road runner. You know, I mean, at, you know, at some point somebody will credit us for saying beep beep, right? I mean, at <laughs> some point, right? We'll get credit for it. But I, I think I think you'll see tonight how really explosive this Cardinal offense is, especially how they get the ball to Hopkins is great, but Rondell Moore, the second round pick, has been very good. He's a he's a field he's a field position changer, and if this offensive line can hold up without Garcia if he doesn't play, and certainly without Rodney, you know Hudson in there, you know, then then I think they have a they have a they're, they're obviously will continue to move the football. I think we're going to learn a lot about the Packers defensively. Their defensive coordinator is not going to be able to to coach tonight. That that's a problem. They don't have Jai Alexander. That's a problem. We're going to find out how good they really are. They have it. They have played one really good offense in the Cincinnati Bengals, and they were able to come away to victor. I'm not sure that they're going to be able to do that this week in the game. I mean, I think it'll be a fun game to watch. I I, I'm excited to see it, but I think to me, Arizona, you know, they were playing their guys in the fourth quarter, which I didn't understand, but I think Arizona is just got too much firepower for them on
1: both sides of the ball. And the Packers and Cardinals combined a winning percentage of nine twenty nine. That's the highest by two opposing teams entering a Thursday game in week eight since 1934. So that's why there's so much excitement around these two teams who appear to be absolute juggernauts. And you mentioned the Packers' defense, how they're going to hold up. Listen, the Arizona Cardinals are averaging 32.1 points per game. That's the most for a team since 1948. So eventually that has to slow down, but I don't know if the Packers' defense will be the team to do it. I mean, Arizona, they're just so balanced right now, Mike. Like I said, 32 or more points per game, 400 more total yards, and their defense is only allowing 18 or more points again. So it's... It's really a team that's unusual in that they're one of two teams that ranked top 5 in scoring offense and scoring defense this season. Only the Buffalo Bills could also claim that. So in terms of balance, right now Arizona is doing that.
2: You know, and I think Vance Joseph deserves a ton of credit. You know, we've we've kind of made fun of him as a head coach on this pod, but uh you know when he was in Denver, but I think he's really done another another guy who's done a great job of kind of learning from his mistakes, rebranding himself. And he has done a, a really good job of being able to be aggressive, creative within his scheme and utilizing his talent really well. He deserves a ton of credit for their success.
1: And one reason why not to buy the Packers, Aaron Rodgers has lost each of his last 10 road starts versus a top five total defense. So in the past, he has not fared well in this scenario. Meantime, Steelers at the Browns. Browns are minus three and a half, the Steelers, I mean, listen, I uh, uh, let's start with this, Mike, because a lot of talk about Mike Tomlin being linked to the USC coaching vacancy. What did you make of that and that potential distraction?
2: Uh, I mean, I think that's just a bunch of rumors. I think that's just Twitter talking. I mean, he, he killed it right away. You know, I mean, the SC job is is obviously an attractive job, uh, but I don't think uh, there's certain guys. I could see Urban Meyer going there. Of course, I could see Urban Meyer going to LSU. I think there's going to, at LSU, I'm told, once a pro coach. They want an NFL coach. Well, you know, LSU is one of the top five jobs. I mean, if, you, if you've if you coached at Florida, you know how great LSU is. You've coached at Ohio State, you know how great LSU is. I, I could see Urban leaving Jacksonville immediately for LSU because that's one of the top five jobs. Could I see him going to USC? Probably, but I think USC has a lot of different things going on. Uh, I don't see them. I, I think if they're going to hire a pro guy, it's got to have somebody who's got ties to their program like Pete Carroll did at one time.
1: That's interesting. So Thomas not going to go anywhere. Listen, Steelers Browns, this has always been a mismatch. I mean, Roethlisberger in his career, 23, two and one against the Browns. He's absolutely owned this team. But speaking of quarterbacks, Baker Mayfield says he might try to play with a torn labrum. Who would you start him or Case Keenum?
2: Well, yeah, probably would start Baker to see how he could hold up and see how far we could go with him. I mean, the challenge is going to be they're going to get their tackles back this week, which will help. I mean, the Steelers are a really good pass rushing team. I mean, they're ninth overall in the league in pass rushing based on the analytical data. And, you know, they're good. They're a good run defense team. They're seventh. So the Browns are going to have to throw the football more effectively. They get shoved back. The biggest issue for me in this game is, is can the Steelers score enough points? Can the Steelers generate enough offense with Ben not being able to thirty 32nd in the league? in overall analytical passing. You know, they really can't do the things that they need to do. And the one area of weakness that they have on defense is in their pass coverage. So it's going to take the Browns to throw to them, run, not run them throw. I, I like the Browns here. The Browns' execution, you know, I went through all the numbers of the teams uh, again, you know, just to kind of after seven weeks of the season, you kind of want to get a sense, A.D., of who's really doing a good job in terms of execution. You know, who's been really good the last four weeks? Who's is showing improvement? You know, like Carson Wentz has dramatically improved this game in the last four weeks. Tribute to Frank Wright and their offensive coaching staff for getting him to play better. You know, Arizona, they have played well for all seven weeks. I mean, Arizona on just rushes and completions. Just if you add those two numbers, again, that doesn't tell you who's going to win the game. It tells you how your team is executing. They are the third best team in the National Football League in terms of that. Dallas is one at 58.8, which is remarkable. That's incredible execution. Minnesota, surprisingly, is number two at 56.1. Arizona is third at 55.5. Buffalo's fourth at 55.0. Tennessee is 54.3. And Cleveland is sixth at 52.1. So, you know, there's no doubt that Cleveland's execution could be the difference in this game, but it's going to require Baker to have success throwing the football and being able to get the ball down the
1: field. And speaking of having success throwing the football and throwing the ball down the field, it'd be nice if Odell Beckham would step up. He has two receptions or fewer and fewer than 30 receiving yards in three games this season. As you've mentioned in the past, Mike, he's been a real disappointment. Elsewhere, you've got the Patriots facing the Chargers. How about this quarterback stat comparison? This is jarring. Mac Jones, 1,779 yards on 247 attempts. Justin Herbert, 1,771 yards on 246 attempts. So Herbert, eight fewer yards on one fewer attempt. You look at Herbert, an early MVP candidate, and Mac Jones is only being called the game manager. Well, I know that's just one measure of success, Mike, but maybe Mac Jones isn't getting enough love. What do you think?
2: Well, I don't think he is because, you know, he's not, he's never labeled a rookie. He's kind of like he's Mac Jones, you know, like he's played in the league for five years, you know, and, you know, it's like I've said to this, if I were Ted Phillips, the president of Chicago Bears, you know, after Sunday on the flight home from Tampa, I would have thought to myself, how can Mac Jones, a kid that we didn't draft, play better against Tampa's defense and not get destroyed and our guy got killed? Like, how is this possible? Like, what's the the difference lies in the coaching, obviously? And and I I think there's no doubt. And Mac Jones has been very good. And, you know, so is Justin Herbert. I think this game is going to be, I mean, the line right now, I think on this game is five, five and a half. My line on this game was 3.31. It was, to me, it was a close game. The numbers are very close with both teams. And you see it. You see it. I mean, The difference in this game is, can the Chargers play good run defense? They haven't been able to do that so far this year. That's been a big issue. It's one of the reasons why Herbert doesn't get the ball a lot. You know what Belichick's going to do. He's going to take away the deep ball to Mike Williams. He's going to force Keenan Allen to catch a lot but not make a lot of plays, not big plays. And he's going to force them to have to put 12 12 play drives together. And and he's going to try to run the ball, control the clock, utilize his his short passing game and see if they get the game into the fourth quarter. Finally, we saw the Chargers change kickers. They got Hopkins, which I think will certainly help them. You know, they made that decision after the last kid missed five extra points. I've been bitching about that for four weeks now. So I think it's going to be a great game. I really do. I think this is two, even though the records say they're different, I think this is two evenly matched teams.
1: Yeah, Chargers are 4-2. and two, Patriots are 3-4. and four. Herbert's never lost the same team twice in his career. He's 5-0, oh, 13 passing touchdowns, zero interceptions versus teams he previously lost to. So that's interesting. But as far as this game specifically, Mike, I worry for the Chargers. They're allowing 162.5 rushing yards per game this season. That's the most in the NFL. The run defense is porous, and Damian Harris has 100 or more rushing yards and one or more rushing touchdown in two straight games. So I'm curious, if Damian Harris gets the rock, he can... Compound the, the, the flesh, so to speak, of the Chargers defense. That could make things a lot easier for Mac Jones.
2: No doubt. And, and I think when you look at New England, just on surface, I mean, there's only been two games they haven't turned the ball over in, right? And those are the two Jet games, and they won those. You know, now they forced six turnovers in the last three games, and they've only given up four. So they've got, done a better job of protecting the ball the last three games. This is going to come down to they've got to protect the football in this game. Their, their margin for victory is slim, and they've got to do it by protecting the football you know, and, and they've been able to, to, it, to get better at that. And Damian Harris, if he's going to tote the rock a lot, he's got to protect the rock. As my grandson, Dominic will tell you, AD, job, ball security is job security. That's the line they all say in New England.
1: <laughs> I just know Dominic's still locked in on Paw Patrol. So I'm impressed how far he's graduated from, uh, No, I, yeah. I'll
2: tell you what he's locked in. I'll tell you what he's been locked in on. Every week, his father makes him a, uh, he calls it his call sheet, you know. So here he is; he's four years old. His father, no, this is the best. His father makes a call sheet for him, and every Monday night he goes drives over to the stadium to see his father, and he has this laminated call sheet, and and he he's able, and so he so he if I said if I call him up right now and say Dominic. Who are the who are the Eagles playing? And he would say the Detroit, he would he's memorized it and say the Detroit Lions. The the funniest thing, he calls Arizona the undefeated Cardinals. That's <laughs> he's called them. Now we we had a real blurb though. We had a real blurb. So he the bye week's got them all messed up. So on the sheet, we have to put teams resting this week. So those are the teams that have buys.
1: He must love the concept of a bye as a four year old. I'm sure he, he's probably past the days of napping, but just the idea of a bye week. This he sounds like a future boss baby here. This kid's a, a prodigy, already locked oh, in the man. NFL. You,
2: he's not a future boss. He is the boss. He <laughs> runs everybody. He runs the whole family.
1: <laughs> I love it. He's the only
2: male. He's the only male I've seen that been able that that he can boss Millie around with no problem.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the four year old Lombardi, the, the future of the clan, is in good hands with Dominic. That's funny. Yeah. Um, Bucks and Saints Sunday 425 Eastern. Listen, the Bucs are six and one coming into this game. The Saints are four and two. In the regular season, at least, uh, you know, the Bucs have had the Saints number recently. When you look at the numbers overall, the Bucs are number one in offense, they're number one in passing. Meantime, the Saints, they're 31st in offense, 31st in passing offense. Feels like a mismatch Sunday 425 Eastern on Halloween. But first and foremost, Mike, how does the Saints defense try to control and contain Tom Brady and company?
2: Well, you know, they've done a good job against them. You know, last year, like you mentioned earlier, in the two regular season games, they dominated them. They've only scored 26 points in the two regular season games last year. You know, they held them to 23 points in the opener, which is kind of some of those points were junk points. They held them to three points in Tampa. They beat them 38-3 to in Tampa. They come back and they lose 30-20. to You know, in that game, they turned the ball over four times. The the Saints did. They kind of gave the game away. And I think Sean Payton didn't deserve enough credit. We did you know, Monday we did our pod. But watching him coach on Monday night, to me, was a a true indication of that he's a head coach. He buried his ego. He said, look, I know I'm not going to lose this game if I don't turn the ball over. So I'm going to run it. He ran Kamara 20 times for 51 yards. He ran 17,000 variations of screens. He managed the game correctly. He didn't let Winston beat him. He said, Geno Smith, you'll lose it. We won't lose it. And he won the game by three, you know, and it was a closer game than it should have been. But I think that's what he's, he's going to take the same approach. Look, this same defense is tough. You know, they're really good, you know, and, and I think that the Saints have to pick their places to throw the ball effectively, they'll run the ball—not to the degree of success, but they can run the ball. I think it's a closer matchup than what you might suspect. I mean, I, I have this game—you know—counting home field advantage and all those areas. I have this as about a three-point game, and so for me, for me, I, I think with the Saints, when you look at the Saints and you look at this matchup and how how hard it is, playing in front of that crowd. That, that those five points it might go to six, that seems like an awful lot for teams that I think are somewhat evenly matched, even though the numbers don't say that.
1: Reasons to believe in New Orleans: Jameis Winston, 138 passer rating at home this season—that's the highest among qualified quarterbacks at home. As you discussed, Mike Brady's had his challenge against the Saints, two and three versus the Saints in the Champagne era. His worst record versus any team since 2006. Um, but ultimately, this is a little bit of a nerdy stat. But Brady's been pressured on 17.6 percent of dropbacks this season—that's his lowest since 2016. New Orleans has a 27.1 percent quarterback pressure rate—that's their lowest since 2016. So they haven't been great at generating pressure. And so for the Bucs offensive line has kept Brady upright, which is critical.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's the key, you know, and the Saints have done a good job of kind of getting after them, you know, and they can Antonio Brown, not playing takes away one weapon. Now Gronk practice. I don't know if he's going to play. I, I think Gronk, if Gronk doesn't play in this game, I think I would take the Saints and the points. Now you say, how are the Saints going to move the ball? Taysom Hill didn't practice on Wednesday. I think they're going to need Taysom Hill to kind of generate some some plays. Remember, in the last game they played, I mean, this is hilarious. In the last game they played, you know, uh, Winston made the big throw off the off the trick play, right? I mean, I think Brees had 134 yards passing in the game. Yeah, he couldn't make a play against them last year. They last, 134 he had passing against them. Plus, they had four turnovers, and they only lost by 10. Think about that.
1: That is crazy. Saints only the second true home game of the season. Brady's 600 career touchdown passes. It's just wild. Coming up next... Leave the gun, take the cannoli. The legendary line from The Godfather, now booked by Mark Seal, Behind-the-scenes story of the making of the movie 50 years after its release, Mark has incredible stories about Mario Puzo, Francis Ford Coppola, Al Pacino, Marlon Brando, and so much more. That's next on the GM Shuffle.
0: Gambling problem, call one 800 gambler or in West Virginia. Visit www1800 gamblernet In New York, call 8778-Hope and Y or text Hope NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available. For problem gambling, call 888 789 7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please pay responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire. 168 hours after issuance dkngcom slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions terms and responsible gaming resources as everyone knows we are all huge
2: fans of the godfather and any mob story from the sopranos to goodfellas but today we are really fortunate to have what i think is one of the best books i've ever read about the making of the godfather mark seal writer for Vanity Fair's written some incredible books. Uh, the book on Clark Rockefeller I think is worth everyone's attention. But today, Mark, we are so excited to have you here today on the pod to talk about, to me, the greatest movie of all time and how really it, it evolved and became what we all re- spend most of our Christmas day watching, The Godfather. You know, and as I'm reading the book, Mark, uh, I'm I'm reading the book. I'm thinking to myself. I love the title. Le- take the gun, leave the cannoli. I love the title, but I think the book really's title is "Why Collaboration Never Works."
3: Yeah, I mean, it was a clash of so many things, and I think the clash, the tension, the pressure, the conflict, is what created a masterpiece. Uh, in so many different instances, this movie wasn't really meant to be because it was an unlikely uh, book that that the studio didn't want to make. And then the director, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, didn't want to do the, the film in the beginning. And uh, nobody wanted Marlon Brando. Nobody wanted Al Pacino. <laughs> so all these different forces collided to create what's, you know, in my opinion, the greatest movie of all time.
2: Yeah, you know it's so it's so interesting. I mean, from every aspect of this book, and I think we have to start. I think the most fascinating character of the book is Mario Puzo, who this short little, uh, I would call him dumpy, uh, great writer who wrote the a book, the Last Pilgrim, that never sold, but was was credited with one of the greatest novels of all time, but barely sold five thousand copies. If it actually did, decides to finally write something outside of what he considered his art frame and go towards more popular culture. And his whole story is just so fascinating, Mark. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about Mario, because to me, here's a guy at 45 who finally sits down and writes this novel. And everybody thinks he's connected with the mob, but he's not. Everybody thinks he had a relationship with Frank Costello, but he never did.
3: That's right. So Mario Puzo to me is the real hero of the story. I mean, here he was in his mid-40s and he was kind of considered himself a failed writer. He had been striving for so long. He'd been a Pulp Fiction writer of magazines. Uh, he was the greatest Pulp Fiction writer, they said, of his day. And he would create these amazing stories for these uh pulp magazines and uh he had written two novels both of which were commercially unsuccessful but critically well received but he made like three thousand dollars for the first one and maybe thirty five hundred for the second one no i think he made thirty five hundred for the first and three for the second and he said you know it's time for me to give up writing for art i'm gonna write for money and so um the mob was in the in the news. There was a, these hearings, these Senate hearings were on television every day, led by Robert Kennedy and others. And America was transfixed with this, all of a sudden, these revelations about the mafia in America. And so like everyone else glued to their television, Mario Puzo in his living room started watching this and decided, well, I'm going to create. A book around this and he did and he created a fictional family that was even greater and more mythic than fact the Corleone family
2: and Vito was based on his mother
3: well Vito was based on a various mobsters in these hearings and also outside of the hearings but he said his mother is what the one who supplied some of the best lines he said every time the godfather opened his opened his mouth he could hear the voice of his mother and some of the great lines uh, that, that Beto Corleone says come from Mario Puzo's mother.
1: Which is amazing to think about, Mark. Uh, I just want to go back to the casting. You know, Pacino's my favorite actor. He's so indelible as Michael Carleone. But as he has said, and as you point out in the book, he he was not a guy who was comfortable with this role. He wanted to play Sonny. That was the easier role to play. That was the part he felt he could do. Uh, instead, Coppola believes in him. The studio doesn't want him. They want to have him fired. He has to move out of the McCluskey scene. Just tell us about the journey of poor Al Pacino stuck in this film. Yeah, so... So uh, Al Pacino had
3: never appeared in a film at that point. He had filmed the uh, Panic! and Needle part, but it hadn't come out yet. He had been on Broadway and he had won a Tony on Broadway for a, for a play called Does a Tiger Wear a Necktie? And But nobody wanted Pacino. They thought he was too short. Uh, the studio felt that he just was not right for the role. But Coppola said every time he closed his eyes and saw those scenes in Sicily, the face of Al Pacino came into his mind. And so he fought for Pacino. Nobody wanted Pacino and Coppola fought for him tooth and nail. And wow, you know, who else could have played Michael but Al Pacino?
2: And Pusso wanted him. And then when Puzo saw the screen test, according to your book, he's like, he wrote he wrote, Mario, he wrote uh, Francis a note saying, and no, he told Francis, I guess I should write, I'd take back that letter I sent to Paramount about making Pacino, right?
3: Right, exactly. So he saw the screen test and he thought, ah, give me my letter back, you know? And so, but uh once and then you know, up until that scene in, in the Italian American restaurant where uh where Michael Corleone kills the uh crooked police captain and Salazzo, the Turk his job was on the line. But once that scene was done, it was so majestic. Nobody could deny Al Pacino from that point forward.
2: You know, you write so eloquently about it in the book about how, you know, Robert Evans wasn't sure about anything. And everybody thought that Coppola Coppola was going to get fired. And so Coppola fired the six, what he felt like the six conspirators against him on a Wednesday because he didn't want to fire. If he, he knew that the, the studios only fire people on Friday, so they have a weekend to recoup. So, you know, he fires them on six, And then when Evan saw the Dailies and he saw the power of Brando and Pacino in front of him, that kind of solved all the problems, right?
3: Exactly. Exactly. So once, you know, in the beginning, Francis thought, thought he was going to be fired every other day. But once they saw those those scenes, I mean, how can you deny those? Once you see that, I mean, that was just like, you know, pink mist in the air. That's what Coppola wanted in that restaurant. And that's what you see. The two men with the overturned table, uh, Pacino dropping the gun, then going out into the car. And what happened is, a real life on the set, after he did that scene and went out to the car to jump on the getaway car, he, he missed the landing of the car And he fell and twisted his ankle and he had to use a cane. And in the scene before that, where Sonny is talking to Michael about, you know, bada bing, you know, how to shoot people and all of that. He's got a cane. And that was the cane that uh, uh, Pacino was using in real life because he had sprained his ankle.
2: You know, two of the greatest lines, two of the greatest lines in this movie. You just mentioned the bada bing line. And, and then take the gun, leave the, leave the, leave the gun, take the cannoli. We're both, we're all ad libbed, correct?
3: Exactly. The first one was from James Kahn. And, uh, he just said, bada bing, you know, when I asked him about it, he said, did I say bada bing, bada boom, whatever. And then bada bing, I mean, became a classic line, you know, the, the strip club and the Sopranos and uh, among other things. And then, uh, you know, leave the gun, take the cannoli was a brilliant ad lib uh, uttered by uh, Richard Castellano as Clemenza after they killed the turncoat Pauli on that lonely road in the middle of uh, the weeds with the Statue of Liberty in the background. But the amazing thing about that scene is the Statue of Liberty isn't facing the scene. The Statue of Liberty has its back to the scene. So I thought that was so apropos that you know, these men in this country with the Statue of Liberty turning its back on them.
1: Mark, you were talking about uh, Marlon Brando, the fact the studio didn't want him either. What was it about Brando? I mean, widely realized as one of the great actors of all time. Of course, those fumies in the 50s, Streetcar Named Desire on the waterfront. Why was it the studio was so reluctant to work with him? Well, at the time, Brando was 47 and considered washed up.
3: Uh, he was known as being temperamental on sets, uh, sometimes uh, delaying things and just they didn't, nobody wanted Brando, anybody but Brando, uh, you know, was set around this movie. And Coppola and Puzo first wanted Brando. He wrote a letter to Marlon Brando when he was working on the screenplay alone. Uh, and that letter is uh, in the book. And you can see what it's from. his. He gave, gives his address. He writes across the top of the letter his, his current address. North Carolina fat farm, where he was reducing. And he says, dear Mr. Brando, you're the only actor who can play the godfather with the quiet intensity the role deserves. And he wanted Brando, and then Coppola wanted Brando too. And uh, only until they filmed a screen test, but they called it a makeup test because Brando would not sit for a screen test. They called it a makeup test. And in that test, in Brando's home on Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles, he walks out a 47-year-old actor in a kimono with a ponytail, pulls it back, puts some uh, Kleenex in his, in his cheeks, puts some shoe polish on his upper lip, and becomes Don Corleone on that tape. And from that point forward, when the executives and the owner of the studio, Charlie Bluthorn, saw that, Brando could not be denied.
2: You know, it's funny, uh, you know, we we in sports, we we take on, you know, these players that have great talent, but they're a little bit sketchy off the field and, you know, and you always are nervous. And so the first day Brando is supposed to shoot, he missed the red eye from LA into New York. And, you know, I, I could only imagine Coppola feeling like, oh my gosh, you know, he's going to screw us. You know, all the things that everybody said have to be true, but You know, it ended up showing up the next day on Tuesday on The Next Red Eye, as you write about in the book. But I'd love to know from you, after you finished writing this book, if you could say these are the three things why Francis Ford Coppola was so great, what would you say?
3: Well, I think, first of all, his vision. He envisioned the cast he envisioned all of the main players and he had to fight for all of them because there was hundreds of other actors that were vying for that role. Those roles first, he envisioned the cast second, he envisioned in the book. I have a, uh, the the minute uh, there's a scene about the with the production meeting you know where they discuss all of the different scenes
2: oh yeah that's you go through that in great detail that's incredible how they go back and forth and they talk about summer when solazzo yeah. the cat the actor who plays solazzo he comes in there you talk about how you know it's supposed to be summer and everybody's in winter clothes it's just fascinating.
3: Yeah, so Coppola envisioned all these scenes, like just for one instance, you know, he said after Michael and Kay come out of the theater, the Radio City Music Hall, and find out that, that the Don has been shot, uh, you know, Coppola envisioned, I see a old phone booth where the fog, uh, you know, shows their growing estrangement, things like that. Um, So that's the second thing. He envisioned all these different scenes. And then the third thing is I was able to um, have access to a memo where he outlined the 11 of the bloodiest scenes in the movie. And that was fascinating to see, you know, the horse's head scene, the the, the Luca Brasi strangulation scene, all of these amazing scenes that Coppola saw, you know, before committing them to film. And I just think he, he was such a visionary in this film, and that's what made it great.
1: Speaking of visionaries, how about Robert Evans? This is a guy who saved Paramount Pictures, not just with Love Story, Chinatown, but of course, one of the producers, and very famously involved in The Godfather. In, in the course of your research, Mark, you know, it's fair to say, Coppola gets a ton of credit, as does Mariposa, but Robert Evans feels like he should get a slice of the pie as well. How much do you credit him or don't? (laughs) Yeah, well, Robert Evans
3: deserves a lot of credit because he's the one that was the head of production at Paramount. And it was up to him to green light the movie. And he did. I mean, and he put his life on the line for that. You know, as I write in the book, that he, you know, it was a blessing to him, but it was also a curse uh, because he lost so much with that, with that movie, because he became obsessed with it. And he uh fought for it. And he green li- he, he, you know, he's the one who uh he and Peter Bart, his right hand And, man, uh, you know, were the ones who made this movie for the studio. And a lot of a lot of studio heads would not have made a a three hour movie back in those days. And he put it all on the line and deserves a lot of credit for that.
2: You know, we don't realize this, but you write about it in the book about how the real mob, the Frank Costello, the Joe Colombo guys, A, they all wanted parts in the movie they all thought they could act in the movie, but B how they almost shut down the production of the movie. Talk about that.
3: Yeah. So in the beginning, you know, Joe Colombo was the founder of the Italian American, uh, league, um, civil rights league. And they were fighting against the stereotyping of Italian Americans in popular culture. And the Godfather soon became, uh, you know, high on their list that they didn't want this made. And, uh, To their credit, uh, you know, the producer already met with Joe Colombo and all he he wanted was one word taken out, which was his number one word that he felt summed up everything about that he was fighting against. And that was mafia. And uh, Ruddy knew that there was only one time in the script where that word was uttered and he was able to take that out. And from that point forward, the doors of New York City opened. And people wanted parts in the movie, and the truckers rolled, and the and the sites were the locations were open, and everybody was working for the Godfather.
2: You know, it, it's funny because when, when Mar, uh Adnan when when Mar Marlon Brando filmed the scene where he gets shot, and of course Fredo's out there helplessly doing nothing, a bunch of mobsters watched that scene. They watched that scene, and it was one of the first scenes that Brando shot of the movie, as Mark really writes about it. And you know, I think to me, everybody recognized perhaps. Not Paramount, but Mark writes about how Danny Thomas was trying to buy Paramount to play Vito Corleone.
3: That's right. Well, a lot of people wanted to take over this project. Uh, First, Burt Lancaster wanted to uh, buy the project from Paramount and cast and be and play the Godfather. Then Danny Thomas. It's uh, it was reported that he wanted to. And he was hugely successful because of make room for for Daddy and all of he had you know owned some of these uh, these great television shows that were popular in that, those days. He wanted to to buy, to buy it and and play the Godfather, and also all these other names: Ernest Borgnine, Lawrence Olivier, all these other names were banded, you know were cast around as possible Godfathers. But everybody thought. Not everybody, but Coppola and Puzo knew it was Brando. And wow, I mean, look at Brando. I mean, he, it was this, I think it was his greatest role. He had so many good roles. So a lot of people may beg to differ, but I think he won the 1973 Oscar best actor Oscar and he'll be forever remembered as Don Corleone.
1: You know, the book was a bestseller, Mark, but what was the expectations box office-wise? Like, were they shocked when it was a big hit, or did they hope that this had to be a monster hit? Of course, they hoped it would be, but, you know, up until the end,
3: Coppola didn't think it was going to be. Uh, He left for Paris, where he was writing the screenplay for The Great Gatsby, uh, again, a Robert Evans uh, Paramount production. And he was in his hotel in Paris— when is what thinking the movie was going to be a flop and his wife called, she was still in New York and she looked out the window and there were lines around the block. The movie was showing straight through the day and night without much gap between the two. And she said, oh, my gosh, Francis, you won't believe it. It's a phenomenon, which it was. It was a rocket ship that went around the world. There were lines around the block in New York, L.A., the Los Angeles Times had an article about what to do while you're waiting in line for the, to see The Godfather. And it was like, you know, do your Christmas shopping. You know, there will be babies born because the lines were so endless and everybody was stunned. I write in the book about how at the premiere, when the lights came up after the three hours was over, were over, nobody said a word and evan said is it a bomb but it wasn't it was a phenomenon that stunned audiences worldwide
1: leave the gun take the cannoli the epic story of the making of the godfather check it out go buy it wherever your books are available mark seal can't thank you enough uh, the movie is timeless the book is timeless i really appreciate it thank you so much Mike, what a great interview he was! Oh, loved it. I
2: could talk to him all day. I mean, you know, just uh, just going down memory lane. But I am telling you, I am fascinated with Puzo. Uh, I'm, I want to know what kind of typewriter he's w- wrote the book with. Uh, he's just an interesting character. I mean, and Marcos in so much detail about it in the book about how he literally sat at a, at a craps table in Las Vegas, losing an inordinate amount of money, talking to the deal, talking to the pit boss. And the pit boss was feeding him information about the mob. You know, wouldn't go into any detail, but just kind of gave him background. And and, and people said to Puzo all the time, you couldn't have written that book without being in the mob. And he's like, look, I, I, I've never had any association with any of them. But what makes it great is, and two, you know, that story. Remember when, when Clemenza hands uh, the guns in the tenant house that they're all living in and makes them hold them, right? Well, that was a true story that uh, when 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 uh, Puzo lived in New York in Hell's Kitchen, he had five brothers and sisters. His mother was there. His dad was put in a sane asylum. And literally one night, the the guy knocked on the window and handed them some guns and then to pay them back. He said, I have a nice rug for you. And so his older brother went with the guy to go get a rug. And literally the cop knocked on the door. I mean, that's all
1: true. It's amazing with that kind of stuff. Where it comes from, how do you find it? Uh, just even the fact that he said, Maria Posa said, forget about writing for art. I'm writing for the money, man. Screw it. And eventually he ends up making a work of art, of course, in The Godfather. Uh, as always, send us your mailbag questions. The gmshuffle at gmail.com. Or feel free to send us a message on Instagram at the gmshuffle. This is from Teddy. The bears are getting tough to watch, even for a fan. A lot of fans have called for Nagy to be fired. From a GM's perspective, what do you look at and consider when contemplating such a move, the strength slash experience of the other coaches, players support for the coach, upcoming schedule slash bye week?
2: You know, to me, Teddy, I think it's a great question. Like, you know, I often say this all the time. We're in the veterinarian business when you're in the, when you're in the football, because the patient doesn't speak to you, right? So you have to have diagnostic tests to examine yourself and to see. And I think one of the areas you look at is how's your execution? You know, and I go right to rushes and completions. You know, the Bears offensively, their rushes and completions at 45.1. It's one of the lowest in the league. I mean, they're sixth in the league in that area. Only the New York Jets at 40.9, which is really low. 40.9. You know, and and I've said this since the beginning of the season, that Mike LaFleur's offense is one of the worst offenses in all of football. And their execution proves it. Seattle at 43.7, Philly at 44.5. You know, we talk about Nick Ceriani, and he's an offensive coach. They're running Oklahoma's offense, and you wonder why they can't execute. Houston's bad at 44.9, Jacksonville at 45, and then Chicago. But but to really, to deepen your, to deeply answer your question, I think this. If I were Ted Phillips or a Bass fan, I'd, I'd ask the one simple question. Why does Mac Jones play good against Tampa and Justin Fields didn't? And the answer is preparation attention to detail, head coach, all those things, which leads you to Maggie's not really a head coach as maybe a nice guy, you know, and, and, but the reality is he's not truly a head coach. And I think you got to make a change.
1: Our pop culture minute was our pop culture, 20 minutes to the Mark sale. Once again, go check out the book. Any closing thoughts, Mike, whatever you got.
2: I'm so excited about this weekend, AD. I really am. I'm excited about people buying the, uh, uh Mark Sale book. I think, I think anybody who likes it will enjoy it. And, uh, you know, this weekend, I can't wait to see Cleveland-Pittsburgh what Baker Mayfield has to offer us. You know, can Detroit get a win? A lot of people are betting Detroit to think they can get a win. And, you know, can Seattle win a home game? I think those are those are kind of the the, the, the themes of the week. And, obviously, the best game is Dallas-Minnesota. You know, we'll get that Sunday night. And I can't wait for that. And then Brady going back in there. I love Brady. Did you watch the Peyton uh, Manning uh, – And Eli brought,
1: uh, yeah, here's the thing about Tom Brady, Mike, you know, you want to hate him because you go, God, he looks like a million bucks. He's got a beautiful wife, wonderful kids. He's the greatest NFL player of all time. And then you see him and he's just so damn charming and funny and self-deprecating. And the line where he said, Oh, I always like playing against you guys. Peyton, I like playing against you more than Eli. What a great line.
2: I mean, it was great. And I love how he just dropped in the, uh, how he dropped in the, Hey, the middle eight right there in the conversation that made me so proud of him. I mean, he, you know, he gets it, he understands it. And, you know, and, and so does Peyton. I mean, that broadcast, I, I, I feel bad for the guys doing it on the other channel because it's so entertaining that you don't want to not. And I think that's the future of, of games. I really do. I think it's, it's like, all that tells me is people want to sit at a bar and watch a game and have conversation, you know, and we need explanation. There's no doubt about that. However, however, you know, it, it, it also tells us that, you know, there, there, there has to be more than just let's talk about defensive backstrops and hands and all that stuff. Nobody wants to hear it. They want to see the bigger picture of the game. And I really enjoy it. I love it. I think both those guys, Eli is, to me, is the is the surprise of the season. He does a tremendous job.
1: I agree. I think you knew going in Peyton was going to be funny and he's so polished and you've seen him on Saturday Night Live and all those commercials. But Eli's, he's held his own there this brother. And you're right, the, the amount of buzz that that's getting, the Manning cast and as far as clips being disseminated and water cooler talk, it's definitely been a hit there for ESPN. Thanks so much for checking the GM Shuffle. Happy Halloween, everybody. Trick or treat. We'll talk to you on Monday.